Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Did you know that over 95% of all businesses fail within the first 10 years? By listening in to what Bob's guests have to say, plus direction from Bob Pritchard himself, it's our intention that you won't be among those statistics. Now, here's your host, Bob Pritchard. Hello, world. Welcome to the 330th episode of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business Channel. We're broadcasting in this eighth year across the world from our studios on Hollywood Boulevard in Hollywood, California. This is where the stars live. This is where entertainment meets technology. Did you notice this week that after 12 years, Twitter finally made a profit? Last week, the 12-year-old social media network, they posted their Q4 2017 earnings. And for the first time ever, they put up a profit, probably smaller than they'd like, but a profit. Now, the company was in the green to the tune of $31 million for the quarter on reported revenues of $732 million, which is pretty flat from a year ago. So they've got to be worried about the fact that they're um, not getting a growth in revenue and they're not really getting a growth in users either. So um, most of the profits due to the um, improvement in click-through rate of Twitter's targeted ads, and this, of course, is led by machine learning. So they also benefited from a uh, growth globally. Revenue was down 8% in the US, but it shot up 17% of the in the rest of the world and 34% in Japan. But they've got to be worried, as I mentioned, in about stagnation in recent years. And when the company went public in 2013, they had 218 million users. By comparison, Facebook had 845 million. So they had 218, Facebook had 845, but uh, Twitter's only a 330 million, so that's only an increase of not a lot. Whereas Facebook's now up to 2.13 billion. So from 800 to 2.13 billion, and from 200 million to 300 million. So they're performing pretty poorly compared with, say, Facebook. But it was enough to excite the investors and get the uh, shares up to a high of $34 per share. So I guess if you're Twitter. I don't know what's going to happen with Twitter. It's it's hard to tell, but I suspect that um, Twitter may not be long for this world. I'm not suggesting next week or the week after, but I think they've uh, got some problems. Now, a company called Patriot One, I really love this, has created a concealed weapons detection system. And this, again, relies on machine learning. And it could transform the face of modern public security over the next few years. You know, it could be placed in airports and schools. And it it increases the level of um, security exponentially. And you won't have to turn buildings into fortresses with armed guards every five feet to, um, to make it happen. So hopefully, Patriot One can make the world a safer place and not make it look like a militarised state. You know, one, often when you get off a plane overseas, particularly in Europe, 
the first image you see is soldiers with enough military equipment to stop an army. I always find that pretty scary coming through customs and you look out at all these guys with helmets and submachine guns and all these things on their belt that look like they got blow up a, a, an army barracks. So Patriot One's developed the first of its kind cognitive microwave radar concealed weapons detection system. And uh, it can be installed in hallways and doorways. It's only small. And you can put it in anywhere where there's a, um, a choke point where people have got to go through. They can um, identify weapons and alert security without any intrusion on the person. So um, it can identify um, irrespective of, of the size of the, of the building. These very small devices can be mounted invisibly over doorways and entry points, you know, f from a restaurant to a train station to a stadium. doesn't make any difference to the size of the building. And uh, the devices scan individuals passing within a range of the system. And if a positive match is received, the security detail can jump on them. So um, that's pretty cool. And a high detection rate of over 94% of knives and guns as well as it picks up ball bearings and nails and other typical contents of explosive vests. And this is an incredible advancement over the existing metal detectors. Now iterations are being developed at the moment that identify explosive materials as well. And uh, it'll also detect certain composites and exotic metals where existing metal detectors cannot do it. And since no identification of individuals being scanned is made and no data is retained from the person except that you're carrying something naughty, there are no privacy issues that you've got to contend with. So um, they're all good things. That stops those you know, all the do-gooders from saying, ah, oh, it's an invasion of privacy. Who gives a shit if it's an invasion of privacy if it keeps you alive? I'm sure those kids in Florida wouldn't have minded having their privacy invaded if they knew that seven of them, 17 of them would still be alive today. Now, there are plans to develop a mobile version that will allow law enforcement agents to detect the presence of a concealed weapon before they engage. So if somebody's coming towards them or somebody's um, in a car, in a vehicle, they will be able to um, detect the, the weapon. So hopefully this weapon system from Patriot One will virtually redefine the industry, setting standards and expectations that will leave all the existing stuff as totally obsolete. And there'll be no more of that standing in that um, piece of equipment at the airport where you put your hands on your heads and it scans you. That'll be a thing of the past. So this game-changing technology can't come quickly enough, but it's also, again, we've been talking about machine learning and AI, it'll learn from each installation. So... Um, the sales efforts are currently focused on 
churches and synagogues and academic institutions, event centres and casinos and things like that. But it could be any locations at high risk of terrorist attack. So it's really quite fantastic. So I'll bring you more details as I get them. But so far, it's working really well. A 94% success rate is pretty hard to argue with, isn't it? Now, do you get my 30-second daily read newsletter? Um, they go out every day, as it suggests, except the weekend. And if you're uh, if you're in the States, you get it Monday through Friday. Of course, if you're um, in Australia or in Asia, we've got a hell of a lot of people who get it in Asia and Australia. They get it Tuesday through Saturday. But that's the way it is. So we now have got about 1.73 or so million daily subscribers, which is also a lot of business executives. So you're out there and you want to get to a business executive anywhere in the world or everywhere in the world, let me know um, and uh, we can help you reach them. Every day we talk about a different subject. We talk about medicine. We talk about new apps, new technology, uh, subjects like Hyperloop, autonomous cars, blockchain, see that Musk's now got approval for a Hyperloop from Washington, D.C. I think it's going up to New York and then possibly beyond up to um, um, Massachusetts, but I'm not really sure about that. But he got the approval this morning. So that's good. So if you don't get my newsletter, go to my website, bobpritchard.com and enroll. Now, as you probably know, um, it's – it's a big problem in America and it's getting to be a bigger problem overseas, but almost 60% of graduates in the US have student debt. And this student debt can be horrific. I mean, the collective student debt in America is $1.3 trillion. And up to 40% of those students will default on their loans. Now, that's horrendous. I know my son, um, he went to George Washington um, and a couple of other universities has to pay off his student loans every month and it's a real drag. But now student debt has become a business opportunity. A number of startups and investors are paying for the education of students and in return they get a portion of their future earnings and it's called an income share agreement. Now, under a traditional student loan, a lender provides a student with the money and the student pays it back like paying off a car with interest and you pay it off in monthly payments. It often takes years, sometimes decades, to pay this money back. But with an income share agreement, private firms pay for a student's tuition and when the student enters the workforce, they give up a percentage of their post-college graduate salary to the investor. And when you think about it, we all know that with artificial intelligence and robots and machine learning, the prospect of securing a great job will continue to become more and more difficult. So firstly, securing a great job is going to be more difficult. And secondly, retaining a great job is going to be more difficult. So in many ways, an income share agreement is a student's way of protecting themselves against unemployment and underemployment. Because if you're not earning, you don't have to pay it back. But under a traditional student loan, whether you're working or not, you've got to meet your monthly payments. So I think it's a bloody good idea. And uh, particularly when you look at the possible employment situation in the future. 
Now, so far, there's only about a thousand students that have signed up for ISAs at US colleges. So there's um, that's not many. There's a hell of a lot to go, but um, so it's still too early to count on whether this is a great solution to the student debt crisis. But in a market that's desperate for disruption and students that are desperate for a break on the student loans, this could be a fantastic advancement. And uh, baby steps are better than no steps. It's great that they're trying. Um, Chinese police officers now have high-tech smart specs that ID criminals. They're equipping its police officers with suspect identifying smart glasses. It's the latest advancement in China's big push to integrate facial recognition technology into the daily life of its citizens. Now, the glasses can recognise suspects from photos in a crowd or even from looking in a crowd through a camera. They can pick out faces from any angle. And once these images are captured, it's run through a database of suspects and a match can be determined in just 100 milliseconds. So um, Chinese citizens at the moment can use their face print to do everything from enter college dorms to board aeroplanes. And I've read that um, they're doing the same thing at, at um, LAX. Um, I think Delta so far, or it might be American, has brought in the face print, so no more getting away with the tickets and it will recognise your face and check you onto the plane. And uh, these facial recognition systems can also detect when a person of interest wanders more than 1,000 feet from designated safe areas. China's working very hard to develop this technology to match somebody's face with their ID with over 90% accuracy. My guest today, Paul O'Byrne, is an impact specialist in the cultural creative industries. He recently worked with Kate Blanchett, leading the social impact community and environmental sustainability sustainability initiatives in the theatres that Kate uh, Blanchett was associated with. Very interesting guy, particularly at this time when we're all very conscious of the environment. And I'll be back with my very good friend, Paul, after this short break on the Bob Pritchard Radio Show, which is coming to you from Hollywood, California. And this is where technology meets entertainment. Do you want your business to achieve results you never thought possible? Bob Pritchard is recognized as the business leader's advisor and has 30 years of experience as a straight-talking troubleshooter for Fortune 500 companies and SMEs across the world. Whether you need a checkup across all departments of your business or simply want to improve marketing, advertising, performance measurement, or some other area, Bob Pritchard will work his magic so you can blow away your competition. Bob Pritchard is also one of the most in-demand speakers in the world. Over 1,500 clients on five continents and countless standing ovations are a testament to how he changes the fortunes of business. Pick up Bob's new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, at your nearest bookstore or visit Bob's website at www.bobpritchard.com. Remember, if you want to be successful, call Bob Pritchard now. Worldwide phone numbers and more information can be found at bobpritchard.com.
You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking Radio Show. Over the last five and a half years or so, and I'm not sure whether I mentioned that um, I've just signed for another year a couple of weeks ago. So we've got six years, not bad, considering we started on a 13-week trial. But uh, over those five and a half years, we've given you insights into the lives of over 300 of the world's most interesting people. We talk about what they do, the challenges they've faced and what makes them tick. It's um, extremely difficult to make your mark in the world and achieve success. Most businesses fail. Most people fail. Um, in fact, the latest figures I saw with startups, it's over 98% of startups fail. So the aim of this segment is to introduce you to people that are involved in interesting and possibly different roles. And um, we try to learn their keys to success. The other aim of this segment is to assist you to overcome challenges, seize initiatives, and become highly successful. My guest today, Paul O'Byrne, is a really interesting character. He's an impact specialist in the cultural creative area. And what the hell does that mean? Well, we'll find out in a minute. But Paul most recently worked with Kate Blanchett, Academy Award-winning actress, and Andrew Upton, and uh, with Theatre in Australia leading their social impact community and environmental sustainability initiatives. He did that for five years. He's got broad experience in building strategic cross-sector partnerships and the creation of programs for strategic financial and social impact in the cultural sector and creative businesses. He's an expert creative entrepreneur, helping companies conceive, lead, deliver and evaluate major change programs turning their business problems into long-term assets. Paul's got broad experience across a wide range of leading creative arts and cultural businesses, and he works with executive teams to assess the real strategic need, identify the best path, identify new funding and revenue opportunities, and solve complex problems and drive the project with cross-sector stakeholders to deliver lasting value, and that's what we all need. Paul's been a successful startup founder, not many of them around, major event manager, social entrepreneur, environmental and corporate change maker. Phew, I'm glad I got through that. Paul, welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. You are being heard right around the world. Hey, Bob, how are you? I am really good. I'm really good. Good. It's, um, the weather looks like it's getting better. It's nowhere near as cold. For those of you outside Southern California, which is most of you, uh, we're used to weather that's sort of 80 degrees every day, never any rain. And uh, for the last two or three weeks, we've had nothing but rain and cold, which is very unusual for us. And uh, we don't like it. And the freeways don't like it. But uh, it looks like it's picking up. Now, Paul... Social consciousness and sustainability, they're becoming increasingly important to corporations today, and there's been loads of studies that's shown 
just how important they are to the bottom line, to share prices, to employee morale, um, and a whole range of other things, and not to mention it's great for the planet. So how would you describe social consciousness consciousness, (laughs) and sustainability for those who are listening and are not quite sure what we mean? That's a good question. Um, You know, I think... Just to start with, it's 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 coming back to the fundamentals of of businesses being able to operate or having a license to operate, and and when sometimes the the pendulum sort of swings a little far um, in business and corporate favour, um, you know, I think sometimes the broader population goes, hang on, this isn't quite fair. The planet's kind of getting uh, shafted along the way, or or the communities that these companies are working with um, are not necessarily getting looked after, and I think that so social impact and social sustainability and a and an environmental sustainability in a corporate setting is really about um, just bringing that back into balance and and recognising that companies, be they small micro businesses or large multinational corporations, are actually operating in an ecosystem, and that ecosystem needs to get looked after. So if that's about looking after your supply chain and the workers that work within that or um, or your fleet of trucks that are driving around the country um, and ensuring that maybe they're not polluting the communities you're trying to sell to, um, that's uh, that all helps ultimately your brand and your place and your uh, and your ability to, to actually operate in that market. Companies that have, have become socially responsible, um, there's a lot of companies, but the ones that are obvious, you know, the, the Patagonias, the Starbucks, those sorts of people that um, are socially responsible, is that being driven mainly by millennials and, and the younger generation or is it across the board? It seems to me just with my son who's now 25 or 26 um, and his friends they really do care whether a company is being socially responsible. It really matters to them. Do you think they're older folks like us? Do you think it? Um, you think we're as concerned? I, I think so. I think um, certainly inside business, um, you know, p- companies are always looking at their um, ability to operate, and so. I think they're concerned, and on the consumer side, certainly there is a percentage of the population um, that's concerned about you know the impact on the planet or on on communities. But and I think that that obviously grows um, the the kind of younger uh, demographic you get. But these this kind of concept isn't new. Um, you know, Cadbury's the you know the global chocolate brand um, back in the mid 19th century they were operating in Birmingham and um, and they were they realized that actually a third of the population of Birmingham were living in you know disgusting streets and everything else and so they established this uh, factory in Bourneville um, in 1879 and and it was state of the art they had um, exercise facilities and bathing units and gardens and sports fields and hygiene facilities. And actually, by looking after their employees, they were actually looking after their business. They were making sure that they had long uh, 
established um, relationships with their employees, and 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 obviously that would trickle out through their, um, you know, not only their quality, but but in terms of their brand and their reputation within the local community. Yeah, that's interesting because I've been to. I wonder if they're two different things. I wonder if um, you know people like, for example. Um, the Googles and and people or that have fantastic facilities that have got exercise rooms and they've got um, they serve meals to the employees they've got massage rooms they've got all of these things is that really is that because they want to or because there's such a competition for staff today that they think geez if we don't we're not going to hang on to people well, I think it's probably <laughs> I think it's probably the latter, but at the same time, it's you know there's a there's a business imperative and to minimise churn and uh, and and also attract attract and retain those the right talent, and you know as you as you well know and your listeners would know it costs a lot to uh, to replace someone and uh, and so it's much it's often much cheaper to give them food or, or give them a gym um, membership or what have you. So I think that, that like looking holistically at, um, at employees and employee well-being is just one part of being a good corporate citizen, but also looking at your, um, you know, looking at the environment in which you work or the factories in which you operate, that's, that's another factor of being a good corporate citizen. Yeah, I often wonder what percentage of companies um, are good corporate citizens because it does boost share price, it does boost your market cap, it does all those things. But I wonder how many of them would do it if it didn't. You know? Yeah, look, I I think there are there are a few uh, brave ones. You know, as you mentioned, like the Patagonias who who kind of just have a bit of a north star and they and they just go for that and that's very much core to who they are as a brand. Um, but you know the there is you know also a long history of 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 companies that have a strong social conscience being taken up and purchased by large multinationals. Yeah. So you know the likes of Ben and Jerry's and um, uh, um, you know many others. Um, I think Tom's, yeah, Bird's Bees. Um, you know, all of those companies have been taken on by larger corporations, and and recently, um, Campbell Soups bought uh, a, a health and well-being brand for babies, and they were established as a, a B Corp or a benefit corporation, mm. and uh, and they they Campbell Soups decided that no, they were going to keep that. That was an integral part of the brand, mm. and they were going to keep that as um, and unchanged as they. Uh, folded into their portfolio. So it, I think companies and corporations are increasingly realize, realizing that not only this is the right thing to do, but it makes good business sense and also they're going to attract and retain the right people. So look, no one, I don't think people are altruistic and, and they have this kind of halo over their head and they want to, they want to do stuff for the sake of it. It actually it makes good business sense, and yeah. you know, um, GE have you know, more than ten years ago they identified that actually being a good corporate citizen and focusing in on the opportunities that presented themselves around environmental sustainability uh, and health and well-being have created enormous new markets for them. 
um, and the same with Vodafone in uh, in Africa. They, you know, 10, 12 years ago, they were using mobile technology to help people uh, actually transact money without the need need for banks and currency. And that was happening years and years ahead of ahead of their time. But what they were doing was actually opening up brand new markets for themselves. Yeah. Well, yeah, just going back to that, the um, nearly all of the transactions in Africa now are all um, um, online transactions. Very few people have money, and the banks don't don't really count. Yeah, exactly. And and you know, Vodafone spear, spearheaded that, and actually, it was one of they had a kind of an entrepreneur um, that was you know, one of their team in Africa that kind of saw an opportunity, saw that Vodafone actually had the tech to deliver on that and with a few tweaks was able to make it happen. Yeah. So, so far we've spoken about big companies. Mm. If you're a small company or even a medium-sized company, how can you be socially and environmentally responsible and profitable? Doesn't being – does – being socially environmentally responsible means you have to spend more money. Uh, yes and no. I think it's about spending money necess- or spending money or diverting resources, be that time or or staff or whatever it might be, into the right place. And it doesn't mean that you have to replicate the big boys and uh, and go out and try and be everything to everyone. Um, you can be, you know, for instance, you could be a, a local plumber that that someone, you know, let's imagine a local plumber that says, you know, my mother was a, um, a, a single mom and, and she went through the homeless uh, centre. I want to do something for that for that centre. So then that, that individual says, right, I'm going to actually volunteer my time uh, to that women's shelter downtown but also what I'm going to do is every time I get a client, I'm going to tell them what I'm doing and see if they want to give $10 or $5 or just made, make a little donation to cover the costs of all my materials. And then they can also engage their supply chain and say uh, when they go to their, their plumbing supply place, look, I'm doing this thing. So it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be an enormous undertaking. It can be a very small um, thing. But I think more than anything, that those sort of stories and that kind of engaging with your supply chain or with your end customers and giving a kind of a, a story um, is actually what engages people and what connects people to a business. If that's a small micro business like a one, one man plumbing operation, or it could be um, I recently was working with a, an Australian fashion brand who um, they were saying, look, where do we start? We've got such a complex supply chain in multiple continents. Um, where do we start? We, we're being pressured on social media to do to do more uh, or to talk about things more. Where do we start? And I think the important thing is just to actually start and to kind of say, you know, well, we're going to do something. And so one of the things that, you know, when I worked with them and we identified that one of the biggest impacts that they were having was actually their international travel as a company. They travel a lot. Right. And, and and so even just offsetting all their flights and 
uh, and purchasing green power and actually saying that for travel and for um, and for the company operations at their head office, they were carbon neutral. That's a that's a very simple thing to do. It's not. It's a first very small step, um, but then I think you know it's about bringing in some people that can help navigate that that pathway and find a way that is meaningful, not only to that company but to their employees and their and their various stakeholders. Most most particularly their their customers. And that person that you call in is Paul O'Byrne, right? <laughs> Not necessarily. I mean, there are a lot of really great people. I mean, yeah, certainly I could do it. And uh, you, I mean, you, you stop know, that's there. what you I stop there. You don't give anybody else a plug. You stop there. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, I was Me. reading um, a story about um, Mars, the French Bill Gates, if you like, who has set up a um, st- sustainability giving uh, organisation where he's asking everybody to give 1% of whatever they've got, whether they're a worker or whether they're a big company. Um, and he, he did emphasise that there's all these benefits, the increased share value, the increased market cap, the retention of staff, all those things. But he said, in order to really get that to pay off, you've got to promote the hell out of the fact that you're being socially and environmentally responsible. Mm. So does that mean that you've really got to yell it out at people rather than just let it happen by osmosis? Well, I think when everyone is is yelling, um, it creates for a very noisy uh, environment. And uh, and I think w- what it comes back to is differentiation, like any kind of marketing message. And I think if if it's it's one thing to kind of give one percent, but if everyone is giving one percent and everyone's talking that they're giving one percent, it, it's kind of meaningless, right? Except it's good so that whoever's getting the one percent. Absolutely. And I think that therefore it's coming back to when when you're actually talking about that, it's actually talking about the impact rather than we gave $220 million last year. Who, you know, who cares? Because the next guy will say, well, we gave $245 million. And yeah. so it actually is, well, what actually happened with that money? What are the communities that have been affected? What are the what are the lives that have been affected? How is the how is the planet or this community or the world in which we operate a better place? That's what people want to hear. That's what they resonate to. And and I think um, that the kind of clarity of that of that message comes from really good measurement and evaluation and having a really clear sense of what it is you're trying to do there. So what like rather than focusing in on the solution, actually zeroing in on the problem and going, what what it was what is it we're trying to fix? And then telling people how you're getting closer to fixing that. Right. Um, for a small company, obviously the benefits for a big company are pretty obvious, but for a, a smaller company, mm-hmm. um, what's the business case for a smaller company? Apart from well, doing, doing good and feeling good. Yeah, of course. I mean, I think, you know, for a small company, I think engagement, uh, well, actually, I'll take a step back. It's, I think it's the first thing is differentiation. I mean, let's face it, business, 
today is incredibly competitive and uh, in most markets are very cluttered and it's very hard to differentiate yourself in those. Um, so I think actually having a point of difference and having something that you can kind of stake your business on that is not only engaging and meaningful to your customer base, but it's also meaningful and engaging to your staff um, and your stakeholders and the banks that give you money and, and, and. So I think that, you know, more than anything, it's about kind of reputation and, and differentiation. And I think that if you're a, you know, if you're a small business or a, you know, medium-sized business with a couple of hundred employees, that's incredibly important when you're actually competing for your labor or, you know, for your employees against the likes of Google that, uh, you know, that have unlimited resources um, or, or other companies that have incredibly well-developed corporate social responsibility programs. So I think that increasingly, you know, particularly as millennials enter the, the workforce um, more and more, um, that message will need to be um, prevalent pretty much throughout the, the value chain. Who's doing um, sustainability and environmental um, impact well? And who's doing it badly, apart from the Trump <laughs> government? <laughs> Look, I think, um, I mean, I mentioned Vodafone uh, previously, and, and I think what's impressive about them is that they've been, um, they've been very consistent and they've focused in on that intersection of what needs to happen and where they can add the most value and what they're best placed to do. And I think that kind of clarity and impact intersection is super important. So, so I think Vodafone have they kind of staked their their um, line in the sand a, a long time ago and have been true to that. Equally, um, someone like uh, Walmart, who you would you wouldn't think of as an environmental leader, have been able to save literally millions and millions and millions of dollars by by not only saying. Uh, that this is where we're going as a company, but um, engaging their workforce to say, all right, you're you're on the ground, you can see stuff happening. And one guy in there, I mean, this is a, an old example, but one guy who was on their um, floor, uh, on their shop floors said, you know, actually, why, why are all the vending machines lit up? Um, they actually, you know, we've already got enormous store lighting. They realized they were just by taking the, the uh, light bulbs out of their vending machines, they, they save $2 million a year. No one, wow. you, 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 you saw, um, you know, you still saw the products because those stores are so well lit. Sure. Um, but just those simple things. So I think, you know, the people, there are a lot of companies that are doing stuff and not, you know, um, beating their own drum too much about it. They're just getting on with it because they realize also that it's actually, it's great for business. They're making, a, you know, they're making a lot of savings. Uh, particularly in the environmental space, um, and yeah, and so I think that they're doing they're doing it particularly well. Um, I mean, there are so many banks. I think uh, have often been competing in this space. Um, phone companies like Vodafone, tech companies, um, and they're all kind of staking, you know, trying to sort of stake their their place. And I could go on for days with with examples, but it's 
Um, and even, you know, you know when there's money to be made in this space when, when the large consulting companies move in. So, you know, the likes of PwC and Bain and all of those, they've all moved into this space as well. So um, clearly it's, it's moving into um, the mainstream. There's a brilliant ad from Starbucks at the moment on television that says that, um, you know, they've planted so many trees and they've, they're carbon neutral and they've employed, you know, 10,000 students and they've employed 10,000 veterans and they've, it just goes on and on and on about all the good things they've done. And it's a really impressive ad. You sit there at the end of the ad and go, wow, I feel like going and just supporting them by being buying a coffee. You know, it's yeah. a very powerful ad. Um, where do we go from here? Well, I mean, what's the big trends that's happening now that will continue to grow? Or what's going to happen next week, next year, year after? Well, I think, you know, certainly the, the um, you know, the bigger guys are, you know, the, the very big brands, global brands are, are sort of setting the, the course. But at the same time, um, they're not very nimble. So I think some of the, the larger brands are learning from the smaller brands. Um, but, but I think the, you know, the role of the employee uh, in, a, in, an, in an environment where, there is going to be um, people transitioning through their through their careers and changing uh, careers on a number of levels uh, on on a number of occasions throughout their career. They need to be engaged not only with what the company is doing every day, but but who they are and what their values are. Because um, so that I think will continue to be a huge um, huge factor. What I think in- the. Sorry. What influence will the public play? For example, all the with with the Trump presidency, all of the fuel companies have come out saying we want to scrap all the fuel emission laws. We want to scrap the um, mandatory mileage targets. We want to scrap all that. We want to go back to the good old days when we can do what we fucking like. Um, so, how does the public play a role in all this? I mean, it's all right. Uh, with it's with all right. their wallets. Yeah, but you've got to buy fuel. Yeah, true. And they're all but the same. Absolutely. <laughs> they all I think, well, I think that, you know, a lot of people are moving, you know, particularly, well, in, in the bubble of Southern California, at least, sure. it's, sure. Uh, you know, to electric cars. And I think that, you know, that a lot of the, the major kind of car companies realise that that is, that's the future. Um, but, look, I think the you know the current administration and and where things are going it's it, it like anything it's it's a needle that sort of swings back and forth but but ultimately i think in terms of um the general population and where things are going uh and the rise of of the millennials as we've talked about um it's only it, it's only going to become more and more important for companies uh, particularly as you know, if the disparity in wealth becomes even more prevalent or climate change or the effects of so-called climate change uh, become more increasingly apparent, uh, people will be looking for answers and they will be looking for solutions. And and governments increasingly are stepping away from all of this stuff and I think corporations are recognising 
and businesses, you know, large and small, are recognizing that they have a, a powerful role to play in it. Okay, this, this is probably something you don't like talking about, but you were with um, um, Kate Blanchett and Andrew Upton for quite a long, many years. Mm. What's their commitment to sustainability in the environment? Obviously, they have a strong one. They, you wouldn't have been employed. <laughs> yeah. Um, look, I, I think uh, it's one of their initial visions for the Sydney Theatre Company that they took on in uh, as the artistic directors in 2008. When they were asked what what their vision for the for the company was, initially, like before they'd even started, they said that they wanted to to demonstrate that the arts could be a leader in climate change alongside uh, fuel companies or banks or whatever it might be. And so, the and it's an unusual place for the, the arts to kind of say, all right, well, we're going to, we're going to have solar panels on the roof or that kind of thing, especially when uh, the art form uh, is, is the most important thing, which is kind of like the profit center for, uh, sure. for an arts and cultural organization. So, I think for them to kind of stake their reputations uh, on that on that bold vision back in 2008 was um, was a brave one, and and I think you know working with them closely, I realised that they they do walk the talk. You know, they when they moved back to Sydney, they completely retrofitted their uh, home on Sydney Harbour with one of the best rainwater harvesting systems and solar. Um, uh, solar arrays on the roof and even timed showers and so you would there are, there are not many Hollywood stars that, that have timed showers <laughs> yes. so, so they you know they, they walk the talk Kate Kate would drive herself around Sydney in a Prius and uh, and they, they lived it and and you know that's that was incredibly encouraging to the staff and the audiences I think of of the Sydney Theatre Company, but but in, in, interestingly, you know, when you when I used to speak to the HR manager there, she would say that nine times out of ten, when asked when asking new employees why they were coming to work for Sydney Theatre Company, it was the environmental sustainability credentials that attracted them because they could go and work, you know, and be a marketing yeah. manager in so many different places, or they could be a they could be an accountant in so many different places. But there were very few companies that were actually putting themselves on the line. So with that, STC was able to attract um, uh, really great people like myself. Like yourself, which is <laughs> not a bad way to finish the interview. So if you're sitting out there and you've got a small business or a medium-sized business or indeed a large business and you believe that you should be doing a lot more about um, uh, sustainability and about environmental impact, then Paul – O'Byrne is your guy. I, I know him very, very well. He's very dedicated, as you've just heard. He's very smart. He really knows his stuff, and uh, he would he would love to talk to you. Paul, thanks very much for speaking with me on the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Thanks, Bob. It's been a pleasure. You can learn more about Paul at, I don't know where this comes from, but pollination.international.com. No, no dot com, just dot international. Oh, do, okay, dot oh, dot international. I've got to. I should have asked where that came from, but I, we don't have time. Very interesting name. 
And I'll be back with more of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business Network after this short break. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking, absolutely no bullshit business radio show. We're on Voice America Business Network, and we're broadcasting from Hollywood Boulevard in Hollywood, California, where entertainment meets technology. I know most of the world's envious of the weather in Los Angeles, but i got to tell you, we're sitting here looking out above Sunset Strip right across the west side of LA, and it is lovely and clear, but it is cold. Um, and by cold, I mean probably um, 60 degrees, <laughs> which for a lot of the world isn't very cold, but it's bloody cold for here. Now, the opportunities for small business and entrepreneurs, I reckon, is going to be fantastic this year. And I'm also convinced that we need to do it in 2018 because I think there's going to be a big correction in 2019. We just had a bit of a hiccup on the stock exchange, but um, I think that's only minor compared with what we're likely to get next year. There won't be any sort of downturn this year because the government has an election and they will pour much into the economy to keep us all feeling really happy until it's over and then we'll have about a $23 trillion debt and we'll start to worry. I've just read some good, great news that stem cells can rebuild our ageing bodies. This is terrific. Now, the biotech company Cellularity is using stem cells from Placenta to help rebuild damaged tissues, treat conditions like leukaemia, and make 100 years old the new 60, all without the risk to embryos. You know, our bodies are made up of different types of cells, each with a specialized function. For example, skin cells, blood cells, muscle cells, and so on. But stem cells are unique because skin cells can make more skin, but they can also become a bunch of other types of cells as well. And stem cells aren't just found in embryos. Adult humans have them as well. Fat, blood and bone marrow stem cells can all be extracted via procedures like liposuction, draw, blood draw and bone drilling. Bone, bone drilling. Oh, sounds terrifying. But while adult stem cells can only be used to grow a few different types of cells, embryonic stem cells can turn into any type of cell in the human body. Unfortunately, these cells can't be collected without harming the embryo. But the placenta connects the developing fetus to the uterine wall to allow nutrient uptake, thermoregulation, waste elimination, gas exchange via the mother's bloodstream, and to fight against internal infection. It also produces hormones which support pregnancy. And placentas are absolutely chock full of stem cells with one 
birth, one birth can generate over 100,000 medical treatments. So just one birth, 100,000 medical treatments. Think about that. And not only are they potentially more versatile than adult stem cells, they don't harm the baby or the mother. So that's another great medical step forward. And uh, the medical world is going ahead in amazing leaps and bounds. Now, collaboration is unlocking new lines of business for many business owners. Collaboration removes the daunting concept of doing everything on their own, from finances, finances, from finances to service and logistics. You know, setting up and running a business takes a lot of skill sets, and most business um, entrepreneurs or CEOs don't have all of the skill sets that are needed to run a business, and this makes a more collaborative approach to business growth an attractive option. It's a financially viable strategy too, with new research from American Express finding mid-sized businesses collaborating on joint initiatives, and they're on average $430,000 better off. Now, this was a survey across 700 executives from mid-sized firms. So, Mid-sized firms that collaborated were on average $430,000 better off. And the research also found that businesses with relatively low levels of collaboration had lower expectations for growth and made much less money. So businesses that aren't open to collaboration are holding themselves back because when you collaborate, you see you broaden the opportunities that are available to you. And apart from being more efficient and cost-effective, you get much better reach. Collaboration allows businesses to join the dots and create unexpected opportunities. And the report found that businesses that were particularly successful were those seeking out non-traditional partnerships from collaborators outside of their direct industry. And the report finds collaboration to be beneficial regardless, regardless of the business's size. And it encourages big business to consider the role of smaller businesses in overcoming challenges. The retail and logistics industries are currently facing uncertainty. We've got Amazon knocking on the doors. But the opportunities for collaboration between companies are rife. A collaboration business model can save mid-sized businesses from having to invest in their own infrastructure or resources. You can share them. In the past, small businesses may have had to stretch themselves, for example, to hire a delivery driver or someone to organize and prepare parcels. But the gig economy has given small and medium businesses a faster way to do this by tapping into a transient workforce and using things like Uber to instead of having your own delivery person. And this accountability, if you don't do it well, you don't get paid, improves the quality of the labor in the short term and allows businesses to effectively measure the value of their investment. This also applies, for example, to restaurants. Restaurants now can deliver, they can have home delivery and use Uber rather than having a driver. 
and you pay very little for that. So collaboration can prove to be a key competitive advantage. Now remember, if you're not living on the edge, you're just taking up too much space. You're blocking somebody who wants to achieve. It's easier and much more rewarding to do the impossible than to do the ordinary. Any bastard can do the ordinary, and you certainly don't want to be ordinary. It's better to aim for the stars and miss than do what a lot of people do and aim for the gutter and succeed. And if you're always trying to be normal, I pity you because you'll never know how amazing you can be. Normal is boring. So I hope you can join me again next Tuesday when I will again be broadcasting from Hollywood Boulevard in Hollywood, California, where the sun always shines. A bit chilly tonight. But in the meanwhile, continue to be successful because the alternative really sucks. This is Bob Pritchard. You've been listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Please join us again next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, enjoy another week of success in your business and your life.